So this morning, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 1. As you see on the screen, the, the title for my message is Keep Watch For. And in, as we look through these verses, you're going to see three things that we need to keep watch for uh, as individuals and also as the church body and even go further than that. The association needs to keep watch for it, the Southern Baptist Convention, the State Convention. These are things that, that, that can make their way in that we need to be careful of. One of these involves a, a, a people or, or a group of people. Uh, one of them has to do with motives, and one of them has to do with uh, doctrine. Now, Galatians is an interesting book or letter, whichever way you prefer to refer to it. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. Um, if you have read it, read it, read it again. But most likely, um, the way you have read it in the past has been from a Bible reading list. And it tells you to read chapters 1 and 2. Tomorrow you'll read chapters 3 and 4. And then Tuesday you'd read chapters 5 and 6. But I suggest you read it from beginning to end. Um, when we read something aloud, it takes longer than when we, read, when we are reading silently to ourselves. To read Galatians aloud takes about 15 to 20 minutes. And I won't do that to you this morning. I did it to my Sunday school class. But, uh, so it shouldn't take less than 10 minutes to read the entire letter. And... It was a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Galatia. And generally when we receive a letter, we read it from beginning to end, don't we? We open it up and we start with, you know, dear and we end with sincerely. We don't read a few paragraphs and then stop and lay it down and come back the next day and read a little bit more. But we just go through it page after page after page to the end. And when you read the entirety of Galatians, you'll notice details that you don't always see when you're reading short passages of it. I think it's mainly because it's in our memory. We just read it and then we read something that points us back to something we've already read. But when you do this, don't let yourself get bogged down. We want to ask ourselves questions uh, like in, in verse 18, then then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and, and to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Our mind wants to say, well, what did Paul do for those three years? What did they talk about in those 15 days? Don't, don't do that. Just, just read through it. You can go back and study that later, but just, just read through it. The study Bibles will, will drag us down too because we want to jump down to the bottom and see what the the author of the study Bible has to say about where Paul was for three years. But just read it, <clears throat> excuse me, just read it through. Read it like you would a letter from Aunt Lydia. And the same can be said for the bulk of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, so just something to think about as you're reading the, um, as you're doing your Bible reading. I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend doing numbers that way. Uh, you can if you choose to. But um, the, particularly the shorter letters, you know, just read them from beginning to end, then go back and dig into them. But I, I want to give you a little background on Galatians as we begin. Andreas Kossenberger 
He writes, although the letter is relatively short, it has exerted enormous influence on Christianity. The early church fathers wrote more commentaries on Galatians than any other New Testament book. We know that the church fathers wrote regularly. They, they wrote their commentaries, their various uh, comments. E- even heretics would write and quote Scripture. Um, it's according to the scholars who, who know these things. If we did not have any preserved manuscripts of the New Testament and all we had was the writings of the church fathers, some 95 or more percent of the New Testament can be reconstructed just from quotes of the church fathers and the early writers of the uh, one, two, three hundreds. So they were writing about the Bible. They were writing about Scripture. Galatians is generally accepted to be written by Paul and to be the first letter that he wrote. It was probably written in the late 40s or the early 50s A.D. at the latest. Uh, Since Paul wasn't gracious enough to date it for us, uh, we don't know explicitly, but it doesn't matter. Um, And there's no reference to any particular event that would clue us in to the day, allowing us to pinpoint that. So it may be the case that Galatians is this first book of the New Testament. Scholars are somewhat divided on whether Galatians or James is the first book. And it's certainly not a hill one wants to die on because it really doesn't matter which one was written first. But Paul's writings are typically directed to a specific people. When you think about Philemon or Titus or his letters to Timothy or a particular church or churches uh, like Ephesians or Colossians. But Galatians is a little different in that it was written to the churches of a region. And we should have a map. The uh, dark green portion of the map there in the your upper right is the region of Galatia. And it today is primarily in modern-day Turkey. So I'm not sure if you can see it or not. Uh, it does come per, through pretty clear there. You notice the, the cities of Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all there just um, above Pamphylia. And those dark blue and orange lines, um, I guess I could have been looking back there, couldn't I? Um, the, the dark blue and orange lines show us uh, Paul's route that he likely took on, the, on his first missionary journey. And all of those cities should sound familiar because we find them in the book of Acts, uh, particularly in chapters 13 and 14, where we read of Paul's first missionary journey. It's detailed for us. And it was in the city of Lystra where Paul was stoned. So in Acts 4.19 it said, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So we know that Paul wasn't killed in Lystra. Paul even revisits the city a time later. Now, would you want to do that? You've just been taken outside the city. You've been stoned. You've been left for dead. And yet, you could go back. I wouldn't want to. I would hesitate, but Paul doesn't. Acts 14, verses 20 through 22. 
But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, they went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, though many tribulations must enter the kingdom of God. And Luke goes on to tell us in verse 23 that part of Paul and Barnabas' ministry as they traveled through these Galatian cities were to appoint elders in every church, to appoint pastors, to appoint leaders in these churches. And it's likely these churches as a, as a whole is who Paul is directing this letter to. Not just one particular church, not just those who stoned him, but rather to all the churches that was in that area. So in verses 1 through 5, we see Paul's introduction to the entire letter. Let's turn our attention there. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, looking at the words of Paul, uh, what, it, uh, what he had to say to the churches at Galatia, but also what it, the text says to us here today. Lord, this text um, is as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago, and I just pray that you will open our hearts and our minds uh, just to the truth uh, that it contains um, and help us to be sensitive to your spirit as uh, we study this morning. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the introduction to... Um, to most um, ancient letters, the introduction that was most prevalent, you would see uh, the sender or the author naming himself, what his rank or his profession was, who it was written to. There would be some sort of greeting and there would be a wish for good health or thanksgiving. Now here in Galatians, Paul doesn't include a wish for good health or thanksgiving. Um, that's a topic for another day. There are a couple of other letters that he does, uh, doesn't do that either in the introduction, one of them being Titus. Um, but again, that's, that's a different subject. But these verses pretty much mean what they say. There's nothing hidden here. Um, what, it, what it means is what it says. It says what it means. The letter's being sent by Paul to the brethren, to the believers in the Galatian churches. Paul says he was not from men nor through man, but rather his designation as an apostle came from Christ and from God the Father. He's not saying I'm not, uh, that he was doing this on his own. This is a task that he was given by God to carry out. Now, Paul is not alone. We know that Barnabas is with him. If you look at Acts 13... At the beginning of the missionary journey, uh, it's 
indicates that Simeon was probably with him as well. And we don't know who else may have been with him, been traveling with him on that first missionary journey and as they went through uh, these cities. Uh, clearly, uh, he, he references the disciples um, in Acts 13 uh, that had gathered around him, so there were more than one. So there was a number of people who had traveled with him. Look again at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon makes an interesting point here. He writes, grace rightly comes first and peace afterward. I had not thought about that before. Is it even possible to have peace without the grace of God? We can't. We've got to have His grace. We may feel like we're at peace, but unless we have His grace, unless we're filled by His Spirit, we cannot know true peace. The only peace we can see is just what is on a surface level. So most of our time is going to be spent, uh, the remainder of our time is going to be spent in verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. So point number one is we need to keep watch for people who are troublemakers. Keep watch for people who are troublemakers. And based on my study, there's a good possibility that Paul wrote Galatians before the end of his missionary journey, which ended at when he gets back to Antioch in Syria. Paul says he was astonished. Other translations use amazed or, or he marveled at just how quickly they had deserted him who called you, how quickly they had deserted God to this different gospel. Now the people that were likely uh, troubling the Galatians were, were referred to as the Judaizers. The layman's Bible commentary defines the Judaizers as Jewish Christians zealous to preserve Jewish customs and to graft the gospel of Jesus onto the law of Moses. So these were people who were Jews by birth and had come to the belief that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. But they wanted to add to it. They wanted to say, okay... We're glad that you believe that Christ is the Messiah and that you want to be a Christian, but here's all the things that you need to do. And one requirement in particular that the Judaizers uh, tried to place upon the Gentile converts was circumcision. Um, they believed that the circumcision was a, a mark of their faith and the Judaizers wanted the Gentiles circumcised. 
They also wanted them to observe the other laws and the other customs, keep the festivals, the feasts, those sorts of things. Jesus himself said he, he didn't come to replace the law, but to fulfill it. There's no need for these things to be carried on, but yet these Judaizers wanted to continue to carry them out. In short, if a Gentile wanted to be a Christian, then they needed to go about it in the same way that the Jews had. That was kind of their perspective on it. So we know from other letters that Paul wrote that it was his practice to go into the synagogue when he arrived in a city and preach there essentially till he was ran off. Um, and we, we've read um, in Acts how it was the Jewish leaders from Antioch and Iconium who would later stone Paul and leave him for dead. Uh, so his run-ins with false teachers were not uncommon. If you read his other letters... You'll see numerous references to false teachers. Again, many of those were Judaizers. However, there were other false teachings that uh, later on make their way into um, the church as well. So you want to keep watch for those, those people or those persons who are, who are troublemakers. Secondly, we need to keep watch for wrong motives. Look again at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Our desire to seek the approval of man is strong, isn't it? Whether we admit it or not, whether we realize it or not, we want man's approval. We live in a culture that makes it easy to do that. Uh, makes it easier than ever to attempt to get that approval of man. Uh, we used to refer to this as, as trying to keep up with the Joneses. I'm sure most of you have heard that phrase and know what that phrase means. If they got a new car, well, I got to get a new car. Not only do I have to get a new car, I have to have a better car. I have to have a better one than they got. If they buy a boat, I'm going to buy a bigger boat. And the cycle was never ending. Houses, second houses, it just went on and on. But the cycle never ends because there was always another Jones family to be kept up with. There was always another family that you had to try to impress. Marshall Seagull writing for Desiring God, says, People-pleasing is a well-worn scheme and trap of Satan. If we think people-pleasing began with self-esteem training, the tolerance movement, or social media, we have underestimated how interwoven this temptation has been with humanity. The sin of people-pleasing is as old as people. Since the fall, we have been tempted to live for the praise and approval of others. Man has always fallen into the fear of man. And seeking the approval of man can manifest itself in, in a number of different ways. I found one author that, that listed several. He mentions that criticism hurts. We should be willing to accept constructive criticism. When somebody says, that, that, that was tough when I took my preaching classes. There was four of us in there and we had to um, 
watch and, and had to preach in front of them. Then they critiqued us. And sometimes criticism can hurt, even though that was not their intent. But our pride and our desire to impress, our desire to look for the approval of man makes criticism hurt sometimes. We want to follow the crowd. We want to be part of the crowd. And to do that, we have to um, sometimes um, look for their approval. We often have a fear to voice unpopular ideas. We may be motivated by someone else's affirmation. And we make comparison a habit. Well, look at what they have. Look at what they do. Look at what they've got. You know, we consider the impact social media has on us. And this is really easy today. Is We don't have to wait to drive by someone's house to see that they got a new car. It's going to be on Instagram before they get off the parking lot, out of the parking lot. But I believe one of the most prevalent of these is the fear of voicing unpopular ideas. How often do we see something, uh, and I'm on, I reference social media two or three times here, anywhere, how often do we see something that we need to speak out against but we don't because of what somebody else may say or think about what we've said. We do it all the time. Often, though, we're not thinking about it in those terms. It is uh, somebody else will say something. I, I, I don't need to rehash this. I've said it before. I don't need to say it again. How often do we not speak the truth to someone who needs to hear it because of what they may think or what they may say. I heard a pastor one time, he was, he was talking about, you know, that many times someone will be afraid to share the gospel with someone because, you know, well, what if they reject me or what if they um, um, are um, hostile to what I, have to what I have to say. And he said, what are you going to do? Drive them from hell number one to hell number two? He said, even if they reject you, they're still headed to the same place. It has nothing to do with you. But ultimately, we cannot serve both God and man. We have to choose who we're going to serve. And God knows the truth. God knows who we are serving. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive... But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God. And here's the catch. Who tests our hearts. God tests our hearts. He knows who we're trying to please. In verse 6 it goes on, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. We shouldn't seek glory from anyone other than God. Siegel closes, he says, Now pleasing God does not mean despising people. The Son of God Himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He counted others and their interests more significant than His own. Imagine that, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for one another. Pleasing God does not release us from relentlessly and 
sacrificially loving people, it does release us from the tyranny of needing their praise or fearing their rejection. Paul closes verse 10 with uh, with saying that he had continued, that had he continued to seek the approval of man, then he would not have been a servant of Christ. It was just uh, last week, uh, I'm studying through Galatians with a couple of guys from church. It was just last week I noticed Paul is saying there was a time when he was trying to please man. And we skip over that sometimes. There was a time he was but yet, he's not any longer. And we should praise God that, he's not, that, that he didn't go on pleasing man. Because had he done so, we would be lacking much of the New Testament. So finally, point number three. Keep watch for right doctrine. And I left this one for last because it really runs throughout the entire passage verses 6 through 10. If you just look back over them, I'm, I'm not going to reread them, but you just look back over them. The, the Galatians were turning to a different gospel. The troublemakers were distorting the gospel. Any gospel, regardless of the source, must not be contrary to the one they had already heard. Paul says that anyone who preached a contrary gospel was to be accursed or under God's curse. Um, Regarding someone being accursed, John MacArthur writes, the translation of the familiar Greek word anathema, which refers to devoting someone to destruction in eternal hell. That is what Paul was saying. If someone brings a gospel that does not match up with what he first delivered to them, then they were to be accursed. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter six, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. So we see there's a connection there. If a man was to be accursed for not having a love for God, and someone shares a a false gospel, I think we can see a connection there that they have no love for God. So it's everyone's responsibility to maintain right doctrine. God's Word, this book here, is the only doctrine that we can trust. Anything that differs from what this book says is wrong. Whether we like it or not. It may sound good, it may feel good, but if it differs from this book, it's wrong. Paul goes as far as to say, if even I come back and offer a gospel that's contrary to what I have already taught you, I am to be accursed. That's a heavy load he's putting on himself. He's like, you know, and, and, and you know, we sit back 2,000 years later and go, well, that's kind of arrogant. He said, it, he, I got it right the first time. Yeah, he did. He got it right the first time. They were not to believe anything else. So what is the true gospel? Well, he gives us a, a, a quick summary back in verse 4. Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present and evil age according to the will of our God and Father, 
Another brief presentation, one that I really prefer, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For I delivered of you, delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So Paul's telling the Corinthians, I delivered to you what I received. It's nothing that he thought of in his head, nothing he came up with, not... Paul's idea, this is a message he received, and this is what he delivered to the Corinthians. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's one of the most simple, easiest, concise explanations of the gospel there is. And it's crucial that we maintain pure doctrine because without it, we'll lose our way. I want to close with a little story that I found in Spurgeon's commentary on Galatians. There were, the, there were these two preachers. The first one spent most of his Sundays preaching about various errors and sins, while the second preacher spent his time preaching what was right and what was holy. When the second preacher was asked why he didn't address the errors and the sins in the same manner as the first preacher, he replied, I do preach against them most effectually. If there is a crooked stick and you want to show how many crooks are in it, you need not do anything except lay a straight one next to it and the crookedness of the other stick will be detected at once. The gospel that Paul presented at at his first visit to the Galatians was the straight stick that everything else needed to be compared to. It was the standard for anything they were to hear from anyone going forward. Paul was so confident that he preached what was correct. Again, if... If somebody was to preach something different, they were to be accursed, even if it was himself. So we have to keep watch for people who are troublemakers. And in this particular case, they've brought in a false teaching. They've brought in a false doctrine. They're trying to lead people away from the truth of Scripture. We must keep watch for wrong motives. Are we doing the right thing for the wrong reason? Do we come to church to be seen by people? Or do we come to church to worship God? If so, the reward that we're going to receive, we'll receive here and not in eternity. Finally, we must keep watch for right doctrine. If we're to maintain the purity of the church and the unity of the church, then right doctrine... The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we must be focused on. That's the only thing that we have to stand on. Nothing else is the truth that this book contains. Not someone's understanding of it, not someone's teaching of it, not someone's preaching of it, but what the book says. If I ever say anything that contradicts something in Scripture, please let me know. Because I want to know. Because that's never my intent. And I pray that anyone who stands in this pulpit 
that would not be their intent either. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come to you again. We come to this uh, time at the end of the service. Lord, that we are um, faced with the truth. We're faced with uh, the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. Lord, without that death, burial, and resurrection, we would have no forgiveness of sins. We would have no comfort in the future. We would have no hope uh, for what's to come. We live in a world today that is chaotic on all fronts, whether it be um, uh, with the Jewish nation and Hamas, whether it be between Russia and Ukraine, whether it be between uh, the U.S. and whoever. Lord, we live in a chaotic world, but Lord, there is a day coming when peace will be brought to this world. Lord, when your feet touch down and the mountain is split, peace will finally come, and it will come in a mighty way. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that Lord, that you will just draw them to yourself, that you'll open their eyes to the truth of your word, and just break our hearts for what we need to do. I ask these things in Christ's name.